Welcome to the International Teacher Podcast with your host, Greg, the single guy, and Matt, the family guy. We're recording episodes from around the globe to tell you about the best-kept secret in education. That's right, it's teaching overseas. We're glad to have you. All right, so my guest today is a teacher overseas, and she's coming at us from Colombia, but she's originally a cheesehead like I am. And she has been in no less than probably six different places, Spain, Switzerland, Singapore, Wisconsin, and Columbia in that order, I think. Am I right about that? Meet Kristen Montgomery. That's correct. And did I get the the order right, too? You went overseas for several years in schools, and then you went back to Wisconsin and back overseas again? Yeah. So actually, when I graduated from university, I went to do the... uh, English assistant program that was in Madrid, where I was teaching at an elementary school, a bilingual elementary school. And I, I didn't actually do my, my college to become a teacher. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I didn't think I wanted to teach. But then I ended up teaching and decided I did want to be a teacher. So then I went back to actually Minnesota and did my license there to become a teacher and knew I wanted to go abroad again and ended up in Switzerland, where it was uh, kind of random. I did my student teaching there, technically, and ended up getting a job for the next three years. So after I went to Singapore and then went back in public schools in Wisconsin for the first time for a number of years, and then just last year came here to Columbia. Tell us which school in Switzerland. I'm not sure if I can say, but it was an American boarding school. Okay. I was at Tassis actually in Lugano and I was there for three years and that was like, uh, 2013, I think to 16, right before I came here. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. So you know what it's like to work in a boarding school then. Yeah. And I can't wait to talk a little bit about that. Cause if you're going to, you're going to talk a little bit about different kinds of schools today. And I think our listeners are going to love it because Matt and I, who have been to different schools, it's from a different perspective, right? Not only are, mm-hmm. you know, you're my guest, so you get to you get to say the differences and I can agree or say, no way, you're crazy. But I can't wait to talk about this because so many different schools that you've been to, you've been to boarding school, public school in the States. Tell me a little bit more about the breadth of teaching. Yes, it's actually been more high school. Um, I did elementary when I was in Spain and their elementary was actually three-year-olds to sixth graders. So I did everything in that range. And then I did one year when I came back to the States to kind of get my foot in the door because I speak Spanish. They're always really desperate for Spanish teachers. So I did one year of fifth grade in an immersion program, but I definitely prefer high schoolers. Really? So that's what everything else has been. Mm -hmm. And your immersion year, was it in Minnesota? That was back in Wisconsin in the Madison area. My niece actually went through like grade school, middle school, high school, all immersion. And she ended up at Lawrence University in Wisconsin with, with not even taking Spanish. She's up advanced beyond the Spanish program. She tutors kids in Spanish, but she's taking Russian. I mean, she's crazy. She's like oh, that's amazing. Great. Yeah. I have to throw a few things about me in there once in a while, but I know this is about you. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely. love the Spanish and the Spanish helping you out in Colombia, I bet too, right now. Definitely. Definitely. So you did a range and then you found your sweet spot and your sweet spot is high school. That's the age that you connect to the most as a teacher. That is the age that I like. Yeah. I think they're, they're old enough that 
you don't have to babysit them in the way that you kind of have to be constantly around fifth graders or younger kids, obviously. So it's, it's a little more hands off, um, but they're still young enough that they're fun and they'll play games and you can have a good time. You're living in Colombia does not mean that you have to speak Spanish because depending on the school, of course, you may or may not have to know the language outside of your school, but the lingua franca, if I may, the language that we teach in is usually in English and there might be other bilingual situations. There might be local language situations, right? But you speak Spanish outside of school and you probably speak Spanish with some of the people like the workers, the local staff, but I bet everything you teach is in English, right? Yeah. And it's actually funny where I am now, I'm teaching also French. So my, my certifications are French, Spanish, ESL, and then I actually have social studies too. It's a big mix of different things. But when I was actually hired to do my student teaching, I ended up teaching French in Switzerland, in the French speaking part of Switzerland, which is kind of ironic. There are positions you never know what a school is going to need. And especially if you can be certified in multiple things, you have a much better chance. I bet when you go to a school right before you, you know, get that, when you get the contract, I bet that you research everything about that school. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. I've got a long list. Actually, I'm looking for a position for next year now, and I've got a long list of questions to ask because some of the things you wouldn't normally think of, like, do you need to buy a car? Or is public transportation going to be good enough that you can get around everywhere in Ubers or in the metro? But what are your top five questions for the schools then? I always want to know exactly what the duties are. Are there going to be things after school that you're going to be expected to help with? And of course, this kind of varies country to country. For example, in Brazil, I've been looking at a number of schools there, and it seems like they have to do about one or two Saturdays a month. And I think that's kind of how it works in Brazil because of the national, right? I see you shaking your head. I was the same way. way. I was like, ooh, I think that's almost a deal breaker. Whereas on the other side, now Abu Dhabi, for example, has got a four and a half day work week uh, just recently. So if you're there, you get out at noon on Friday, thanks to the new government regulations. So that really can make a big difference. It's interesting to hear you say that you were, you're researching Abu Dhabi and they get out half day on Friday for a four and a half day work week, because in some countries in the Middle East, you still have the Sunday through Thursday schedule for five days and then your Friday, Saturday weekend. So that's a very good question. Like what are the extra duties and, and, how many days a week do you have to work? I mean, I can't imagine working a sixth day. No way. I, I, that would be a deal yeah. breaker for me. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it's, it's something the government has done in Brazil. And I remember when I've taught Brazilian students, um, they had said that, that they often go to school for like half a day on Saturday. And that's just kind of the norm. Um, but yeah, I think as a teacher, that's something to definitely take into account because it could be a deal breaker for someone. Some schools will require you to do after school activities every day or once a week, or, um, you know, if you coach a sport or something, you're going to be working on the weekends. So there, there's lots of questions to take into account. Uh, the school that I'm at right now, we also have transportation provided, which is nice, but I have to get up at... Well, the bus picks me up at 5.50 in the morning. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The teacher bus. And to be honest, that is probably the number one reason that I'm not going to stay next year. (laughs) 
I was fortunate to be on a one-year contract, but just having to ride 45 minutes or sometimes if there's really bad traffic, it's up to an hour, uh, twice a day. And that has just been a real deal breaker. What are some other questions that you start off with? Um, I also like to know, am I going to have my own classroom? Because for some teachers, that's not a big deal if they have to share a classroom in high school. But for other teachers, that's really important. For me, I like to decorate and make sure that it's kind of a a space where the students can really feel welcome. And so that's been a very important thing for me. Uh, the, The school that I'm at right now, and again, this is partially cultural with Columbia and partially because of COVID, but the students all stay in the same classroom the whole day. Wow. And so I have to go with a backpack from classroom to classroom. Uh-huh. And that's been very difficult. No, 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 no. That's terrible. No wonder <laughs> why you're looking for another position. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's been very different. But then there's been other times where I've had just an amazingly um, – you know, well-furnished classroom with lots of technology and I am there the whole day and I have small classes. So it really just depends on the school, but that's definitely something you want to ask. Uh, I know you've been overseas several different schools and different situations. So when you focus your questions, are they mainly on the school and school life? And you can sort of adjust to whatever and talk about the culture later. Because I'm, I'm sort of like that. I could live anywhere, even under a bridge. And I just want to know that my job is going to be great because that's my career. I can live anywhere as long as my job is great. I mean, I'm living in the Middle East right now. I don't want to be in the desert, but my job is keeping me here. It's awesome. I would say it very much depends on where you're going and why you're wanting to teach abroad. And in some instances, I've gone because of the school. And in some instances, I've gone because of wanting to be in that country or that specific location. So I think when I came here, I really wanted to go to Colombia and I'm in Medellin, Medellin specifically, um, is I would say for sure the best place to be in Colombia. And so I, I took a job at a school where, you know, I knew it was going to be a decent school, but it was going to be very different in terms of the cultural experience and maybe not a place where I was really going to grow very much as a teacher. Whereas there've been other times where I said, okay, maybe this is a location I hadn't considered before, but the position is going to give me experience or the position is going to, um, you know, allow me to really develop professionally, uh, or it's a really good package. So it kind of depends on what you're looking for. I love that you answered that way. Cause you know, coming out of your mouth, it sounds a lot more clear than my thinking. Cause I'm thinking exactly the same thing you are. <laughs> I really am. When I go and interview, I really want to know about the position the one school that I did not think as much about and just sort of grabbed the position was Switzerland. And the reason was my mom and dad had never visited me overseas because I was always in developing countries. And my parents are mm. older now. And they're like, hey, if you go to Europe, we're going to come visit you. And sure enough, you know, I, I got hired at Tassis in Switzerland down in Ticino, which is like the southern on the Italian border. And I thought I was going there to speak German. And I didn't even research the school. I was like, okay, boarding school, Switzerland, it's going to be beautiful. Uh I love it. Every little (laughs) blade of grass is perfect. And it was a good package. And I'm going to Europe for mom and dad. And that was one, Mm -hmm. the main reason I accepted the position right away. And then I got there and it was like all Italian. But my parents came to, yep, (laughs) that was the one instance. That was my fifth school. And that was the one instance where I chose it because of the location. 
that was my sixth school. I chose the location and it was more out of thinking about my family than it was thinking about me. But like you said, we have reasons for each school. And as you become more seasoned in this career, you change your your perspective and you change your questions as you get older, right? Yeah, definitely. I have a great question for you. Let's think about this one. Then we'll talk more about differences in schools. Um, I got to put a plug in here for the Crying in My Car podcast. I mentioned that to you earlier before the show. He had me on and he asked me a question that I'm, this guy's got millions of listeners. And if you haven't listened to, to Crying in Your Car, in My Car, you need to listen to it. My episode was called Tears of an International Teacher, right? So every episode is tears of something. I love the show. I listen to it all the time now. Anyway, my point is this. The question that he gave me, I couldn't even answer. Maybe you can save me, and maybe he'll listen to it. I'll send him this episode. But his question was, as a woman, do you feel safe overseas, and how is it as far as safety? My answer to him was, you should really ask a woman. But I also said the strongest women that I've ever met are the ones that travel overseas alone. But it depends on the country, I told him, right? I mean, Egypt is yeah. a very tough country. Um, South America can be very tough for certain people. Do you feel safe overseas as a woman traveling alone, right? I don't know if you are you alone? I'm sorry, I didn't ask. I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's a great and very nuanced question. Yes, I would say there have been very few times where I've felt unsafe. I think when I was in Europe... I definitely felt very safe. You know, I, I got very few cat calls or looks or anything like that. I did get kind of harassed and actually like physically touched one time on a train, which was actually in Switzerland, surprisingly. No kidding. Yeah. And I think it was just kind of a freak accident, you know, with a a person that probably wasn't quite right mentally. Yeah. You know, in Colombia here, I am actually very pleasantly surprised. But again, Medellin is not the same as Bogota or is the same as the the coast. I know other women have talked to me about being grabbed on the street or harassed quite a bit, but that's more up on the coast in the north where the culture is slightly different. So I think here actually Medellin is known as like the um, well-mannered area. That's, that's kind of what they're known for. So it's been great here. Um, but I'm also smart about where I go and when I go places, you know, I don't usually walk alone in areas after dark, if it's an area that I don't know. Yeah. Big cities are big cities, right? Right. Right. I mean, if you're, you just have to be smart about it. I think for me personally, I'm also quite tall. I'm 5'10", 5'11". So I think in many places, I'm quite a bit taller than the average man, especially like in Asia. So I think that has prevented (laughs) some things. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's weird because you're, you're so much taller than everyone, but on the other hand, I think it does help a little bit, maybe prevent some things that might happen with a woman that was smaller. No, overall, I'm, I'm happy to say that I felt very safe pretty much everywhere that I've been. Let's talk a little bit about the difference in schools because some of our listeners are over are overseas and others are in the states. So you went from overseas and back to the US. Can you touch on that a little bit about the differences that you saw in teaching in the US in your experience 
compared to some of the experiences overseas? Yeah, I was fortunate in that where I was in Wisconsin and Southern Wisconsin, the district that I was in had very well funded schools. And so all the students had a computer. Um, you know, obviously there's plenty of counselors, not nearly the amount that we actually need to serve all our students, unfortunately, but compared to other public schools abroad, I had worked, for example, in a public school in Spain and, you know, they don't have a nurse in the school or they don't have a psychologist or a counselor or some of those things that we generally consider the norm in the States. Um, I think public schools in the States do an amazing job with special needs and with writing individualized education plans and uh, inclusion. I think it's... uh, it's heartbreaking. Uh, for me, it was a real shock when I came back because I was in a district where I had grown up there and I had had what I remember as an amazing experience. And I learned a ton and I felt very challenged academically. And I felt like my teachers were caring and were wonderful. And I went into a school as a teacher that was very high needs and high poverty. And I think of my maybe 20 students that I had, four or five of them had parents in jail or had been in jail or involved with the law. And on top of that, because I was teaching immersion, about half my students uh, spoke Spanish at home. So then they were often dealing with trauma from immigration issues or having crossed the border themselves. And so there were lots and lots of special needs that weren't being addressed. And I had the hardest year of my teaching career. And I remember crying in November and telling my principal, I can't do this. I want to quit. And he said, there's, there's no one else. You know, I said, there must be someone else to do this job. And he said, there's no one else. And, and that's true because they, they are so desperate for Spanish teachers and teachers that are fluent in Spanish to serve the students that we have. But anyway, I made it through the year. Uh, It was a great learning experience, uh, a bit of a trial by fire. And then I ended up getting a job the next year in high school, which I knew how to teach. Part of the problem, of course, was that I didn't know how to teach fifth grade because I never had, you know, I never taught literacy or anything like that because I'd been a, a Spanish and French teacher. But it was very much a chance for me to see what the reality is in the United States and what the difference is between wealthy school districts and, um, you know, students that are coming from a household where their parents both have gone to college versus students that are coming from, from different households that haven't had the chance to maybe value education as much and have had a lot more things to deal with in their lives. Have you read the book Savage Inequalities before? No. You need to read the book. Um, I can't remember the author's name. I have to, I'd like to Google it, but I don't want to interrupt our conversation. Uh, Savage Inequalities is a book that was written years ago. It's about the way that property taxes are basically deciding which school you go to and the amount of support, the amount of money. Really heartbreaking, but you've lived through it, and I mm-hmm. haven't. I mean, I worked pre-service when I did my student teaching. I worked in Wisconsin in third grade and first grade. It was horrible. It was hell, but it was pre-service, <laughs> right? I was learning. I was a student yep. teacher learning yep. how many kids get 
get lunch or how many kids get breakfast and they come from broken homes in different languages. And overseas is completely different. For me, it's been completely different because I have been working in top tier, not always top tier, but I've been working in the accredited schools where they have to have certain things in order to get accredited by the states. They have to have their accreditation. They come in, they get uh, looked at by the professional associations and the school is usually the ones I've been to, I've been to profit and nonprofit. Maybe you have two. And then boarding school and regular international schools, like a K through 12. Like you say, they're all different schools. The teaching is so different. And I've never taught in the state because when I graduated, I went right overseas. It's interesting for me to hear that from you because you've seen both sides of the story. I just hear about it from the, the friends that I have that still teach in Wisconsin, right? And they're still in the same district, the same classroom, 20 years ago that they went to the first time they got hired. And I can't believe that. I mean, I bounce around like you do. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Let's take a moment break for a little contact information. We'll be back in five seconds. If you want to give us a little shout out and reach out, you can find us on Gmail at international teacher podcast at gmail.com. Remember complaints can be addressed to Greg, the single guy. And we are also on uh, Instagram, ITP expats. You can The boarding school you were at in Switzerland, did you have to do the weekend duties and live on camp and eat with the kids and all that stuff too? I did. Yeah. We didn't have to eat meals with the kids. Usually we had a family group that we had to meet with. Usually it was once a week to do some kind of activity, but we could choose the activity. So it could be going to a restaurant somewhere and the school would pay for it then, or it could be, um, you know, going tobogganing or snowshoeing, or we were able to do a lot of other fun activities. Canyoning, I think one weekend we had some trips with the the family group. So, you know, that's, it's work, but it doesn't feel like work because it's outside and you're doing fun things. It's the only way to do things in Switzerland because everything's so expensive. I mean, it's $30 for a McDonald's yes. meal, right? <laughs> to go snowshoeing, yeah. you have to pay some kind of a fine or you have to have a squirrel insurance on your skis or something like that. It really is crazy. But like you, I went through the school to do all those activities with students. I was uh, My first year, I was just teaching elementary. And you were, t- were you teaching high school at that time in, in Switzerland? High school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was only high school. And did you do the dorm parenting? Because I didn't know yep. anything about it. I didn't know the first year I was there, I paid like $22,000 for my apartment. And that was on, like right off campus. And then the next year I found through living there and talking to other people, I was like, oh, what can I do to get out of this? And they're like, well, why don't you have them pay you 20000 to be a dorm parent? So I had to go into the dorm for middle school and I was teaching elementary during the day and I lived on camp in the dorm with the middle schoolers and I had to do dorm parenting. And that's another story. That's a whole story. Of it. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. That makes it very different. Yeah. Yeah. We did actually pretty much everyone had to do it. I think there were some people, you know, if you were older and you'd been there long enough, you kind of got to do the weekend duty, but you still had to come in and do day duty on the weekends every now and then. But it was every five weeks you had overnight weekend duty. So you just started at like seven o'clock and had to check in the students and then just had to be there on call in the dorm. But I lived in the dorm. Pretty much everyone lived in the dorm. So for four years, I was there. Breathalyzers. And I had a very nice apartment. Yeah, breathalyzers. It's yep, crazy, isn't it? just didn't work. Yeah. I still have so many yeah. friends at school there that I talk to the staff members. 
And I, I look back on my Swiss boarding school years and I, I loved it. And it's not for everybody. Back to those questions when you get hired, you know, and you don't always know which questions to ask. I knew I could do anything I wanted to once I got there. And for the job that the, like I said, I asked the specific questions about teaching. And as long as that was good, I had no idea what I was getting into when I went into that school, though. It was just amazing. It turned out to be so different, you know, like, oh my God. I've got so many stories about Switzerland itself and teaching in Switzerland. The kids all spoke different languages, you know? How many different mm-hmm. languages did you hear on your floor or in your classroom? There were yeah. like 20 at least. Oh, yeah, I have so much in common with you on that because Switzerland is a whole different ball of wax. It's not all of the money and glory. We, I didn't make very much money in Switzerland. I was there for the European life style. And mm-hmm. maybe you have a different story. Maybe you made a better, had a better package, but I felt like my money was sort of going out the window. Yeah, I had a pretty good package. Well, and I think, you know, it was my first job. So I was just so excited that they were paying me to live in Switzerland. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think I might have a slightly different view on it now. But um, and I was there at a time when the exchange rate was amazing for Americans. So, you know, making way more than I would have been making in the States. So I was just very lucky. And then I went to Singapore after that, which is also an extremely expensive place. I think Singapore and Switzerland are probably maybe the top two, certainly in the top five most expensive places in the world. So then whatever you make, you can save and send back to the U.S. And I was very lucky with that. But now, for example, being here in Colombia, it's kind of the complete opposite. And so I feel like I was very spoiled doing Switzerland and Singapore first. I, I think I went to visit Swiss, uh, Singapore and I was I think I went from Cambodia to Singapore just for a holiday to visit. And my friends, Grant and Sue Walker, were working there. I think they were at the Canadian school. I went to visit, but they were gone. So they said, well, you can have our apartment for two weeks that we're gone on our vacation. You can stay at our apartment. You know, we don't have a car for you or anything, but at least you can stay there. And that takes care of a lot of the costs. And I said, oh, great. I went and I had a great time alone. I wasn't lonely, but I was alone. Oh, I went all over the place. The zoo is amazing. The mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> I just had so much fun just relaxing and going around Singapore. I think Singapore is one of those top tier places that people really want to go. Also, you had a great experience to go from Switzerland, which is highly prized in the international. And then you went to Singapore. That school, it, I mean, the kids must have been from every culture there too. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. The The academic culture in Singapore is pretty amazing. It's a place where I would say they're, I don't know exactly what the percentage is, but a huge percentage of expats all around. So you, you know, you don't really feel like you're, I don't know, it's not, it doesn't feel like a local experience. It feels more like an international experience living there just because there are so many people all the time from different cultures and Singaporeans in and of themselves are very diverse because there are people that are more ethnic, I think Han Chinese, um, but also Malay and um, Indian. So there are multiple national languages and it's just a very, yeah, very international experience. I think with um, with the the education culture also, education is very very valued, and teachers are very respected. And so I think if you get in any school in Singapore, you're going to have very well behaved students. 
I mean, there were times where I could hear a pin drop in my class because the students were so focused and listening. And, you know, that that never happened in Spain or Colombia <laughs> because right. culturally that culture is just not like that. So there's a difference between an international, a truly international student body and staff and a host national body of students which I had in Honduras, for example, it was 97, 98% Honduran students, like one, one percenters and maybe 1% uh, from Korea. They were there for the fabric uh, companies Mm -hmm. and they would manage those and go back to Korea. And then there was like a 0.0001% gringo, you know, experience. This is like a couple of us teaching, but it was the American, it was the American International School in San Pedro Sula. So AIS, and I, I, I like to say my, I always say my schools because it's been so long. That was like 2000 when I was doing that. But right now, mm-hmm. so going along with that vein of difference in schools, the student body in Colombia right now at the international school you're at right now, is it... Uh, first of all, is it an international school right now by title? Technically not. It is a school that's a uh, a curriculum that's Canadian. So I would say it's more of a bilingual local school. It's private, but um, same with your school in Honduras. It sounds like it, it's pretty much 98, 99% Colombian. Uh, do they call you Miss? Miss? No, they, they actually say teacher because in Spanish they would say profe. Um, but they call me by my first name. Really? They call me Kristen oh with my. no miss. Yeah. So that's, that's been interesting. And it was the same way actually in Spain too. They call teachers really? by their first name. Mm-hmm. My other schools, it's always been of choice. And I ended up as an elementary teacher, I ended up being called Mr. Chicken because it's a uh. lot. Well, I'll t- and I'll tell you quickly why they, they called me Mr. Chicken because a little three-year-old in Venezuela came in and I was teaching tech and I was trying to show this little boy that there's a relationship between the mouse pointer and the mouse on the screen and the mouse in his hand. And a mm. three-year-old can't develop mentally, can't really figure that out. Like, how does moving my hand move this little cursor? And the kids kept calling me Mr. Maloying, Mr. They couldn't say my name. And every time I would log into something like a little software back in the day, I would log into software for them with a password. I always use the word chicken as my username. And the kids started calling me Mr. Chicken. And the three-year-olds all the way up, and the, even the high schoolers started calling me Mr. Chicken for some reason. And it just, you know, and you're laughing now. I mean, other people are, are giggling, and other people always laugh when they do that. The students will laugh for 10 minutes if you tell them that in class the first day. But they call, they call you by your first name at your school, and it's a, it's a host national student body you have right now. Are they like it one is, percenters, yeah. like the, the really rich that can pay to get into a school that has, you know, North American teachers? Yeah. Um, I would say not quite. It, it actually, it has a very down to earth feel. And I think most of the students, you know, their parents are like doctors and entrepreneurs because Medellin is a big place for entrepreneurs and business. So it's, it's not quite the one percenters, but certainly wealthy, wealthy people that are here. And do you offset that by going off and helping out people in the barrio once in a while? And the school has has a few programs where they've done some things, um, especially for Christmas, with um, you know raising money or buying gifts for specific families. Yeah, yeah, they do a good job with that. What are some other differences in the schools in your your broad career so far that you've seen? 
Yeah, I would say curriculum certainly is a big one. And that kind of sets the stage for what the school is going to be like. I've done international baccalaureate and I really like that one. Can you talk about that a little bit, what that is? Yeah, so international baccalaureate is an international curriculum. It's pretty much a framework, at least for the younger years. It's a framework, a very inquiry-based, very internationally global-minded. And the idea is that a student that is studying maybe in one country and then their family moves to another country, they can kind of have continuity, but yet you still have a lot of freedom to make it match with whatever the standards of your school or the host country are. So it's a great curriculum for international schools. And I would say it's probably the the most prestigious one. I don't know. Would you agree? I agree. And it also, when they talk about the IB, you talk about the IBO is the organization. The IB is the baccalaureate uh, diploma at the end in high school. Is that two years, the official two-year program? It is. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, and that is quite rigid. You do need to decide when you're 16 for the last two years, what you're going to take and you have to take certain groups. And then that class is actually a two-year course. So if you decide to study economics, for example, or if you decide to study biology, you're going to be doing it very intensely, much more intensely than you would be in the States. I think the the U.S. has a much more general curriculum. Even when we go to university, you know, if you do a liberal arts major, you're going to still take a math class and you're still going to take a science class. Choices, um, yeah. Whereas, yeah, other universities, you really don't do that. You get really uh, right into what you're going to study. Then there's also the MYP as part of the IBO program is the middle years program is middle is middle school, if I'm right. And PYP, which I've taught before, was the primary years program, which is the elementary version of IB. Teachers should get to know that if they're thinking about overseas, because we have to know that to go into an interview if they start throwing those terms around, if that's the kind of school it is, because the schools are either all three MYP, PYP, and IB. They might just be an IB school with just the high school. They might be in transition and they have to become accredited for all of these things. And as a teacher, did you train for that before you went to that school that was IB? No, I didn't actually. So my school in Switzerland, I kind of worked my way up and I was teaching lower level classes and they just had the IB diploma program for the last two years. So the last year that I was there, I was able to teach one of those classes and get experience, which was great. And then when I went to Singapore, it was a full all the way through IB. I think that really helps to get your foot in the door. If you can go to a school, they'll usually train you. For example, when I was in Singapore, I had the experience teaching the DP language classes, but I was also teaching social studies at the MYP level. And so they sent me to Hong Kong. They paid for me to go for a great weekend at Hong Kong and get trained in MYP. So ideally, you'll find a school. It's a catch-22 because they want IB experience. You might have some, some people decline you because you don't have IB on your resume or PYP or MYP. If you don't have the experience, how do you get the job? But how do you get the training if you don't have the school that's going to hire you to train you? That's the catch-22 right. I'm trying to explain. But you've been through that, and, and it brightens up your, your resume. and opens up more schools, doesn't it? It definitely does. Find a school that has an IB uh, program of some sort, and that's what you teach, and you get training once you get to that school. All of a sudden, it opens up a horizon for you. That's great. That's a very important difference in schools that you brought up was the uh, 
the curriculum. And the IB is a real popular one. But other schools go with Canadian. I didn't know you could teach at a Canadian school being an American. I mean, it sounds really weird, but... <laughs> you can't, actually. I did have to get my, my license to teach in British Columbia, okay. which was a big headache. Um, so that's definitely something to think about is if you go to a new school, are you going to need to get certified and even if they're paying for it, that's still a lot of personal time for you to fill out all the paperwork and potentially do training or some courses. So another good question to ask. Yeah, it is. Okay, so there's curriculum and students are different. What are some other differences in the schools that you've noticed? Uh, calendar. I, <laughs> I've i got a calendar right here that I'm looking for next year for a few potential schools. Some schools will have a very long summer break and not many days throughout the year. And other schools, I feel especially like British schools are used to having midterm breaks. So you might have a whole week off in fall or you might have um, three weeks at Christmas, two weeks in the spring for Easter or I know in the Middle East, obviously their public holidays are different. So you may have a number of four-day weekends. So that really will depend on both the school and the host country. Well put. Well put. There's Ramadan, there's Chinese New Year, there's unofficial holidays, there's political unrest holidays in some developing countries. Uh, (laughs) You're right. The calendar is very... And even the days that you teach or a lot of these schools go with the, the calendar year similar to the States where you have your summer off and you teach throughout the year, and you start sometime around August or September. And then you have a holiday for the winter break for Christmas, if you're Christian. And then they might even have an Easter break thrown in there. That's your point. We have to really investigate. Hey, are you looking somewhere specific next? Like, if I could magically hand you a, a school <laughs> or a place? You don't have to name the school, but is there a geographic location? I'm I'm kind of in a bind right now, and this is kind of, I guess, the the, again, catch 22 of international teachers. So when I went back to the States, I bought a condo that I absolutely fell in love with and love and want to keep as my forever home. So I have a place back in Wisconsin. I now have to look for schools where I'm going to have the savings potential to be able to pay for that. Or it doesn't cover the whole rent, I guess, renting it out um, with fees and different things. So I'm looking for places with a higher salary savings potential. But at the same time, I would also love to go somewhere where I can continue improving my French or Spanish or Portuguese. And I would love to get back to Europe. But unfortunately, most of the European schools, um, either they require an EU passport or they are, it's a great place to live. The, The cost of living is high, but the, what am I trying to say? Savings potential is low. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the savings potential is low, even though, you know, the quality of life is great. So Europe is hard. That's really a good point. We'd like to have our listeners know that, is that it's a savings potential of a school. It's not the, it's not how much you make. It's how much you can save at the end of the month, at the end of the year. And you can live really well in Central America. I remember mm-hmm. living in Honduras. I lived, I had a maid, I had a car I made enough money just to go diving on the you know once a month in the Caribbean. I could drive right. I didn't want for anything, but I saved so little. You know, I was like my salary was a hundred thousand lempiras, and that was divided by seventeen for a dollar. That made nothing, but I loved living there and I loved teaching there. It's just that, like we talked about before, at some point in your life, 
you have different needs as you get older and we have to focus on a little bit of finance once in a while. So I hope you find the school that you want that's got the package that you want so you can, you know, at least start paying off that mortgage for that condo because that is one good thing we can do is we can save overseas, right? Mm-hmm. We can save money depending on the school you go to and the balance of your life, right? What's what makes you happy? So I hope that you definitely find that place. And it's difficult during COVID because I don't know about you, but I don't know what's going on with the world right now. Nobody does. Some schools are hiring, some aren't. You're going to get a contract. Is it really going to fall through? You know, how secure is it? I don't know. The job fairs are so weird this year. Have you been to job fairs too? I have in the past. I didn't uh, this year. I am signed up with Search, and I would definitely recommend that for people that are trying to teach for the first time. Honestly, the most beneficial thing, it's not even being able to see all the jobs. It's being able to see the information about the schools because there you'll have the estimated salary, the savings potential, the nationalities of the students, how many teachers, where they're from, all that information. And some of those things like we've talked about have been deal breakers. So you can kind of go through and that will help you get to know the different schools. Yeah, it seems like there's a movement towards online now and less in-person job fairs. What do you think? Are, are in-person job fairs going the way of the past? I haven't told anybody this. Now I'm going to say it online. I just published a book about job oh. fairs, right? And it's called Finding the Right Fit. One of the things I struggle with is the fact here I am publishing a book in, what, 2022 in the middle of COVID. It's not over yet. And they still haven't gone back to face-to-face. For the job fairs, and this is what my book talks about, is what you do during that weekend week that you're at the hotel and you're with Search or with ISS Mm -hmm. or with you and I or any of the big job fairs. I call them the big three. And now they're all online. And I tell you, ISS has been doing it since 2015, 2014. They've been doing online iFairs. But to answer your question, I don't know. And I believe, I hope, but I also believe that they will go back to -to face-to-face because there's nothing like interviewing in person. Can you I can't imagine getting a job without actually looking at a person to tell you the truth. And to quote one of my former superintendents, everybody looks good on paper. <laughs> it's that in-person communication, the the nonverbals, the smells, everything the interaction between two human beings that I can't imagine the job fairs not going back to face to face. And my book is going to be a complete failure if at least the first <laughs> half of it's going to be a failure. And I don't want money. I just want people to read it to learn from them. Like the ITP podcast, I want people to learn from us so they don't do what I did and just go to a job fair without any idea what they're getting into. It's an emotional mm-hmm. roller coaster. And you can get screwed if you don't research the school. Right. I don't know about you, but I see in, in Venezuela and Honduras, I don't know about Colombia, but everybody had an international school. I'd go down the street and the boulevard and there'd be this little garage with a Mickey Mouse above it or a Bugs Bunny. And it was an elementary school with an international title. Hmm. One of the things I do at a job fair is before I sign a contract, I ask to talk to somebody that's teaching right now. Like, yes. can I have some email addresses of other elementary teachers? You might ask to have another single woman that that lives there Mm -hmm. that you can communicate with so that you can find out from the horse's mouth, so to speak, what's it like to live there and teach there as a woman that doesn't have family or doesn't have anybody else with them. What's it like, right? 
I don't know these job fairs. You asked me that question, I'll go off on this diatribe, I know, <laughs> but I'm sorry. <laughs> the answer is I don't know what's going on with these eye fairs. I have not been to one. I tried one in the past, but I haven't tried one yet. Have you? I haven't. Um, I mean, I've definitely done interviews over Zoom, and you're right. I would prefer an interview in person, certainly. That's good to hear. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think there there is a lot to be said for the the fair experience. I, I went to one that was in Boston. That's how I got the job in Switzerland. And then I went to one that was in London, and that's how I got the job in Singapore. Uh, I think it's hard depending on where you are because it is a good chunk of money probably to fly to wherever it is. And then you want to stay at the hotel. So then that's more money depending on where it's located um, and the cost of living in that country. But I think there's so much you get from just the buzz around it and meeting international teachers from all over um, and, and getting to meet multiple members of the school too. And my point to that is, Kristen, you say it's a lot of money, but if you think about your career and you're looking at two years of your life minimum with a contract, this is your life. This is your what you do for a living. So to drop money on the fare itself, which is like $200 sometimes, then the hotel room, which is another four or $500, depending on how many nights you're there, and the travel to get there, you're talking at least $1,000, $1,500 and time yeah. away from your school. But I tell you what, it's an investment in what you do for a living. So I tell everybody it's worth it. I guess I'm just one of those, I, you know, I'm one of those recruiting fair fanatics. I thrive on that week, <laughs> I have that up and down roller coaster. I've had the bad and the ugly and the really great job fairs. I've been to like six. So that's why I wrote that book. Oh, I always ask my guests, how did you get into international teaching? Because of my story is so weird, but do you go to job fairs? And a lot of teachers don't go to job fairs, which is crazy, but it's, it's like a crapshoot. I mean, I was working at a top school and I asked a couple, how did you guys, you know, where did you teach before this? And they said, the States. And I said, well, how did you get the job here? And they say, well, we just got a phone call. Mm -hmm. I, I can't believe that. I I spent years overseas trying to get to the school that they were talking about that we were teaching at together. They just picked up the phone and answered somebody calling them or emailing them. And I guess it's because wow. of word of mouth. Like, yeah, you say, wow, because you have to put a lot of, of work into the, the recruiting. So do I. I put a lot of time into it. It's, it's like a second job for me when I'm looking mm -hmm. for another position. You get other jobs, though, as you get older and get to know more people, because this is the smallest district in the world, right? But it's the worldwide yeah. <laughs> district. Everyone knows each other. And once you have your friends that are teaching here and here, you know Graydon, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I think that's how I, I found out about this podcast in the first place, because I worked with Graydon in Switzerland. And then I think he had put something up on his Facebook page about it. And I was like, oh, perfect. An international teaching podcast. He wrote his book, too. And we talked about that on his episode. It, it's amazing what he does. I, I have to say his He's name. He's amazing. Because, yeah. Did you, and <laughs> did you know that he was on... Um, what was the, he was on Jeopardy once. Jeopardy? Yes, yes. <laughs> Can you believe that? I think we actually pulled that up. I taught with him in Egypt and we actually pulled up that YouTube video of him one night at a party. It was hilarious. He was so embarrassed. But it's a small <laughs> world. And I bet if you and I sat down for another three hours, we could come up with all these, you know, nuances of people that know other people that taught with other people at this school. Definitely. Six degrees of separation. 
Are there some other things you want to talk about? You want to leave us with some final words? Oh, I guess one of the questions you usually ask guests was about police run-ins. Oh, you have a police story? Share it, share it. But it's it's not a bad one. It's actually a good one. We love those too. <laughs> sure. All right. Well, I've been, yes, very lucky that I have not had any negative police run-ins uh, in the places that I've lived. The one time I did actually was on a trip, on a school trip with students to Berlin. And this was while I was working in Switzerland. We had a great group of students. It wasn't a student behavior issue at all. The students were actually uh, in a park and we were all looking at um, kind of these tables with these stands. You know how they have all the kind of World War II and uh, Cold War memorabilia stuff that they sell there. Well, they were trying on some handcuffs. A couple of students bought handcuffs and one of the students got the handcuffs on himself and, you know, they're taking pictures and everything. Then he goes to take them off after he bought them, puts the key in the lock and the key just turns all the way around. Oh no. Does not work. And we were still near the cellar. So we went back. He kind of gave us the look like, uh, sorry, nothing I can do, which was not a helpful response at all. So the student and I went and I said, okay, well, there was a bike shop back down the river a little bit. Let's walk there and see if they have a, a tool that will cut these off. And of course, as we're walking in Berlin, it's like me next to this student that's in handcuffs. Tough which school. I'm sure looks very, very strange. <laughs> Tough teacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we get to the bike shop and, and the guy was very nice and tried to help us. But um, whatever he was trying to do was not helpful. And he actually made it tighter to the point where the student was like, ow, ow. <laughs> so now it's been about half an hour and the student is you know, losing the circulation in his hand. So we were close to Alexanderplatz and I thought, okay, well, I know there are police there because that's a big tourist destination. So we walked there, we're able to find a, a police officer. And, you know, in my very limited German, I said, Wir haben ein Problem. <laughs> it was very clear what the problem was. And so he was very nice and, you know, he kind of laughed. He took us to the police station and they got one of those gigantic uh, jaws of death or the, the big bolt cutters and came out and was able to cut them off the student. So that was my interesting police story. Did you take pictures? Uh, I did. I think I have one picture. Oh yeah. my God. Wouldn't it be great to share that with the student years later, like find them somehow, yeah. just put it out there <laughs> and share it with them personally, not on Facebook or anything, but I, I have one story. If you'll stay with me for a little bit, I have one story yeah. about Honduras and it has to do with Spanish speaking. I was there for three years and in my third year, I had gotten really accustomed to living down there and our guards wanted to have internet. We had taken the internet feed from the one apartment. We had four stuck together and a guard 24-7 because that was like what happened down there. I went down to the market on my own, just jumped in the car, went down to the market to go and get some Cat5 cable, which is the, the big internet cable, you know, like 30 feet. So I could wire it up to the guard shack and just feed off of one line. That's how we were sort of getting by with this without paying. <laughs> They're going to come after me now, right? The police, but... <laughs> I, I went to uh, this little barrio that was probably about 45 minutes away at the other side of the city. And I ran in, in like three minutes in Spanish and everything's in Spanish. In three minutes, I had parked my car and I never paid for parking. You're right. We never pay for parking around the city mm -hmm. that I knew of. Anyway, I went in 
Three minutes later, I come back out and I did it really quick. But there's a cop sitting on my car, and he's got his 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 arms are crossed like this, right? And and this mm. whole thing is in Spanish. I can't do it right now in Spanish. He's like, "So, uh, you didn't pay for your parking?" And it was like less than a dollar. It was like fifty cents or thirty five cents for parking in their currency. And he says, "I want to see your papers." And I'm like, oh, great. I'm going to get hauled down to the police station. There, when you go to the police station, everything's pandemonium. And I mean, I can't explain mm-hmm. why I know this, but I didn't want to be stuck there. So I started just mm-hmm. talking to him, trying to, I mean, I, I can't cry because I'm not a woman. It didn't work. I offered him some money and I was trying to get out of it because you can actually pay them to you can pay for their lunch. Bribes work down there. But as I'm bribing him, and he's this tall, lanky dude, like a new police officer. And as I'm paying him, this really large, you know, gordo comes up and he's got like lapel things and Mm. he must be a captain or something. And he's like, What are you doing? Are you trying to bribe my officer? And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm getting into this worse. This is just for like some internet cable for my, my guard. (laughs) <laughs> and he said, where are you from? And I told him the part of the city, and he thought it was a local area. And he said, well, you know, parking rules have changed, and you have to pay from now on. And I said, well, how can I pay now? Because I didn't know. And he said, well, if you're willing to pay, I can I can give you some tickets. How many do you want? So I had to pay the, the four like little tickets that you have to have and put on your dashboard. And he happened to have a whole bounty of them in his pocket. So I handed him exactly the amount for like four of these things to cover Mm -hmm. two hours worth. And I put them on my dashboard, paid him, and then he looks at his other officer and says, okay, we can go. And he said, looks at me and he goes, don't try to bribe an officer anymore. And I'm like, oh my God, I just, (laughs) oh, I was so scared. I really thought I was going to be in a Honduran prison for a while. Oh, yeah. Anyway, that's my police story for now. I like, I like to share those stories. Yours is awesome, though, because if your students are involved, that's a whole other story. Yes. <laughs> What's your favorite parts or your favorite place to live and then your favorite place to teach so far? Mm. Or both? That's a tough question. I have to say living in the mountains in Switzerland was amazing just because of the views. But also where I am in Medellin, it's called the city of the eternal spring because the weather is consistently between 65 and 80 the whole year. And so (laughs) if you're looking for weather, it's right here. That's the best weather I've had. In terms of teaching, I have to say Singapore because the students were so international and very, very well behaved and very academically focused. I love the fact that you've been on our show with us. Thanks for having me on. This was really fun. It's always great to connect with other international teachers. And if people are interested in kind of following my travels or learning more about becoming an international teacher, my website is growingglobalcitizens.com. And I've also got a lot of things for language teachers specifically there. And I've created a course actually for teaching heritage speakers of Spanish. So if you're a teacher, more common, of course, in the United States, but if you're someone that is a language teacher, that might be worth checking out. And your email address is at Teaching global citizens at gmail.com. Growing global citizens. Yep. At gmail.com. 
Yep. And I'll send you the, the website link if you want to put that in the show notes. That'd I would love to put those in the show notes. Thank you so much. My guest has been Kristen Montgomery. She's a joy to talk to. She's been all over the world. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much, Kristen, for joining us. Thanks, Greg. All right. Bye-bye.